Mark chapter 1. Beginning of verse 32. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to Him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And He healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And He was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who He was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house, went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him, and they said to him, Everyone's looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. Father, would you just draw us into the place of Jesus this morning? And I pray, Lord, that you would motivate, inspire, and teach us how to begin in that place every day. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been quite a week. It's kind of a week that left me feeling Friday morning. Like, what is going on? (laughs) What is going on? The tumult of what's happening right now is is stunning to me. And I don't know if you keep abreast of world events and international things happening all around us. But if you do, you know that Tuesday morning, America awoke to remember soberly the attacks of 9-11 11 years ago this past week. And my, how the world has changed in 11 years. Literally in one morning. Now, the world was already changing, but most of us didn't see it. Didn't realize it. We were kind of going about our lives a little little sleepy, a little self-focused, and then the attacks took place, and suddenly there was a new awareness of terrorism that I don't think Americans really had before. So 11 years we've been struggling through this, walking through this, wars and rumors of wars, all this stuff going on. And as we woke up Tuesday morning to remember these attacks, uh, fresh quote-unquote protests, protests, that's media code word for terrorism, exploded in Libya. American ambassador to Libya, J. Christopher Stevens, and two others were murdered when the U.S. diplomatic uh, consulate was attacked in Benghazi. Seventeen others were wounded. Anti-American Islamic violence has quickly spread over this last week throughout uh, North Africa and the Middle East, Egypt, Yemen, the Sudan, Tunisia. Tunisia, where the black flag of Al-Qaeda is flying above our embassy. You can add to that list now Nigeria, Syria, Lebanon, India, Germany, the UK, and even Australia, where angry Muslims are gathering outside U.S. embassies and are protesting the United States of America. Some are trying to say, well, it's because of that anti-Islamic movie that that fellow down in California made. It's far more than that. It's much bigger than that. When we try to blame little insignificant things like that coming along, instead of recognizing that we are truly in a position where the, anti, where the Islamic world is opposed to American lifestyle, until we get that, this is going to continue to shock people. Even at our embassy in Tel Aviv, Israel, which, by the way, should be in Jerusalem. 
Angry Israeli Arabs have gathered there to protest. CBS, DC, and AP report. The Times of Israel reports about 100 peaceful demonstrators marched outside the embassy to protest the anti-Islamic movie, which mocks the prophet Muhammad. What do Christians do when Jesus is mocked in a film? (laughs) Pray for him. Good answer. How many times have we seen Jesus made fun of, mocked, uh, brutalized by Hollywood, and we don't burn flags and storm embassies. There's something different about a mentality like that. In Israel, a radical group called the Northern Branch of the Islamic Movement led the demonstration in Tel Aviv, according to the Times of Israel. A top Israeli Arab Knesset official warned of Armageddon if the UN does not intervene. He, he may be more right than he realizes. <laughs> Now, all that, and today, as Don shared, is Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the Jewish New Year, a time of celebration and joy, but also the beginning of what they call the Days of Awe, the awesome days. It will be ten days from this day forward where Jewish people the world around will repent, will seek to ramp up acts of kindness and generosity. They no longer have the sacrifice in the temple, so they hope they might find their forgiveness in their acts of goodness. (laughs) which you know doesn't work. That's why we need grace so desperately. You can be the most kind person in the world and still be filthy in sin. But the ten awesome days take place. The days of awe, at the end of that, it marches right up to that high holy day, the holiest day of the Jewish year, Yom Kippur. And on that day, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is scheduled to speak at the UN. Isn't that interesting? Guy's going to stand up there and spew more of his vitriolic anti-Semitic rhetoric, what he is famous for, on the very day that is the holiest day for the Jewish people. And I just hear Satan laughing as he mocks our world, as he mocks our Lord. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, how are things here at home? We are in the midst of anybody sick of the election yet? <laughs> Thank you. We're in the midst of the most contentious election that I've seen at least in decades. We continue to watch our economy sputtering along in the slowest recovery since the Great Depression. And it is finally really catching up here in northern Washington. We tend to be a little behind on these things. Not, you know, intellectually, but it's slower to hit some parts of the country. And we we are in difficulty here. Many people are fearing a double dip. I mean, we seem to be right on the verge of that. And so the Federal Reserve this last week pumped more stimulus into the economy. If you watch these things, the, the, the stock market loved it. <laughs> Took off in what some are calling a sugar high. That's probably a really good way to describe it. Exploded, went, went high. Of course, Egan Jones didn't love it. The credit firm downgraded the U.S. credit rating again. It's also further weakened the dollar. What does that mean for us? It means as consumers that groceries are going up, gas prices are going up, cost of living is is going up, while salaries are worth less. In fact, most people are making it on less than they were making it in 1995 right now. So things aren't really good. And and maybe you're not really into watching the news and international affairs because you're just barely making it through the week. Maybe some of you barely made it here this morning. You got up wondering if if it's going to make any difference at all. And maybe all that's going on 
around us is just one more straw on the camel's back of, of issues and concerns and fears and worries in your life. You know, I was thinking about this and the upside of conditions like we're experiencing right now in the world is that typically they drive people back to the Lord. Typically, like when the, uh, when the first Iraq war exploded, uh, people went to church, you know. Right after 9-11, people went to church. And as a pastor, I, I know these things. I, I, you know, there, there are certain trends that you can see. You almost know, okay, it's going to be a big Sunday because people will come out of the woodwork with their worries and fears and, and issues. But where are they now? Why aren't we seeing more people turn to the Lord? Since the turn of our century, it seems like less people are turning to Jesus, at least in our country. We hear of people coming to the Lord in droves in Muslim nations, in Africa, in places around the world. Large movements, Christianity, I've told you before, it remains the fastest growing faith on earth. And yet, do we see it here? Here in the Western world, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly used to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and of the Spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You need to understand that we are in a world that people are being blinded. The God of this world is hard at work. The spirits, and the demonic spirits, working in the sons of disobedience. Peter said in 1 Peter 5.8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Not as a roaring lion, but like a roaring lion. He's not the roaring lion. That would be Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But the devil is like a roaring lion, pretending to be. And he's prowling around seeking someone to devour. Now, we could easily spin off of this and go into a prophecy update this morning, but that's not what this is about. This is about facing the day. I don't want to figure out all the international concerns from a biblical perspective. I just want to consider how to live in these last days day by day. How to get up in the morning and get through the day. And how to know in the day how you're supposed to live, what you're supposed to do. As I've entitled this teaching, Discernment for Difficult Days. And who better to learn from than Jesus? Jesus Christ. You know, international oppression and even personal demonic possession was spiking in the first century. The days when Jesus walked are not so different from our own. Oh, the technology may have been different, but the days were very similar and the active work of Satan was very apparent. Demonic influence. Think about this. In Jesus' day, demonic influence was spiking. It seems to be at an all-time high. We read more about demon possession in the ministry years of Jesus than any other time in the Scriptures. That is not accidental. I believe that is absolutely intentional on the part of the enemy. That he unleashed his demonic horde in all-out attacks to undermine or to sideline or if they could to destroy the ministry of Jesus and ultimately to take him out altogether. 
So don't be surprised as you read through the Gospel of Mark at how many times when it talks about the healing ministry of Jesus, demon possession is mentioned. Casting out of demons is talked about. Jesus seems to be always doing that. It's par for the course. When He's healing the lame and the blind and the deaf, He's also casting out demons right and left. And the mention of this in the Scriptures is interesting to me. He even anointed His twelve and gave them a threefold charter. Listen to the charter of the apostles. This is what Jesus brought them together for. He appointed the twelve, Mark chapter 3, verse 14, so that they would be with Him, so companionship, and that He could send them out to preach, so evangelism, and to have authority to cast out the demons. Wow! Companionship, evangelism, and the casting out of demons. Those were the three primary reasons why Jesus called the apostles in the first place. So the demonic activity was at a high. Well, here's the question for this morning. Because it seems to me like we're seeing it all over again. We're seeing demonic work at a high in this world, even affecting, if it could, your life and my life. Demonic influence, satanic activity, devilish intimidation. And so, how do we face these days without being shaken? How do I live for Jesus in 2012 without losing my composure, without being intimidated, without just pulling back and holding up until Jesus comes? Because we're not called to do that. So how then shall we live? If anyone had composure, Jesus did. It's one of the things I love about just reading through the Gospel narratives and and entering into these pictures, these stories of Jesus' life, is how composed He always seems to be, how, how tranquil, how serenity just seemed to be the nature of Christ in His Spirit wherever He went. We never see Him frazzled. We never see Jesus flustered. We never see Him tense. Tired, yes. Grieved in his heart? Absolutely. Even sorrowful at times. But Jesus never lost it. What about that scene in the temple? Pay attention, the Gospel writers tell us that he went into the temple and he saw everything that was going on and he went home and slept on it. And then he came back and cleared the temple as an intentional move on his part. And even the description, it's funny, pastors, and I've probably done it myself, have a tendency to take the clearing of the temple story and make it this rage issue. But if you read the description in the Gospels, Jesus is not enraged. Oh, He has a cord of, uh, uh, you know, of whips and he's driving out the animals and he's turning over the tables, but he's not enraged. He's not out of control. There was, and I believe there is, peace in His presence. So I want to enter that this morning. Uh, I've had the benefit of having a couple of days of thinking these things through and walking these things through. I encourage you as we study this this morning to take the next couple of days and read back over these verses. Maybe even start tomorrow with these same verses. Consider the peace that comes in the presence of Jesus. He said in John 16.33, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. How do I deal with tribulation in the world? I find peace in the presence of Jesus. Matthew 6.34, Jesus said, Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day 
has enough trouble of its own. Yeah, but what if today's too much? <laughs> I'm not even considering tomorrow because I'm not sure how to get from here to bed tonight. How do I deal with that? How do I do that? Look at Jesus. According to Mark, his schedule was jam-packed. Non-stop. He lived every day in an international, national, and local pressure cooker. The ministry of Jesus. People wouldn't leave Him alone. Needed Him constantly. Verse 32 tells us, When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to Him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. This is in the evening. Lighten up, folks. You know what He had been doing all day? Healing. Working with these same people, bringing relief, shepherding, caring for, loving, pastoring. He's been doing all of this stuff, and now it's evening. It's time for some downtime. Time to watch a rerun of MASH, something, but not this. And they keep bringing the people. And what do we see defining all of the, the activity of Jesus in His ministry? Raising up the sick, healing the disease, keeping a lid on mouthy demons who are trying to out Him as the Messiah too soon. At the same time, dealing with family and friends who didn't get who he was or or what he was doing. Facing the constant scrutiny and antagonism of the Jewish leaders. And the devil, all the while, is looking for an opportune time to tempt Jesus. Now, I would say walk in the sandals of Jesus, but I don't think any of us could handle it. You think your life is tough? You think your day is packed? You think you're not able to get to the end of your list? What about Jesus? He couldn't get away. How did he deal with all of this? Three things to note this morning. Just three things out of this story. Amplification, organization, simplification. Or just ignore those words because I made them up and they're not really in the story at all. Amplification, organization, simplification. If you want an outline for what we're talking about here. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Amplification. Jesus heard the Father's heart. Amplification. Jesus heard the Father's heart. Wasn't Jesus... Hearing from the Father all day long? Yeah, I believe He was. Wasn't Jesus praying constantly as issues arose, as people came to Him, as healing needed to take place? Wasn't He constantly in communication with the Father? Absolutely. And maybe you're one of those who, when asked the question, what is your morning schedule? Do you start with morning quiet time? Do you start with morning prayer? Perhaps you're one of those, like I have been for years, who says, but I pray all day. I'm always in communication with the Father. Listen, Spurgeon said, secret prayer is the secret of prayer. Your heart must speak with God in secret or you have not prayed. Now this is what Spurgeon said. That if we just hit the ground running and we're calling out and sending up thoughts to God as we go, we're not hearing the Lord. We're not hearing the Father's heart. In fact, we have started the day without even receiving the agenda for the day. 
Amplification. What is your morning schedule? If I had any one hope or prayer out of this teaching this morning, it's that God would do something in each one of our hearts to cause us to get up early when it's quiet, when everyone else is asleeping, when the world's craziness is silent, and go pray. And start with the Father. In fact, we could just close our Bibles and walk out of here right now. That's what I hope happens in your life. That's what I seek in mine. What is your morning schedule? Now, don't feel guilty if you don't get up in the morning and pray first thing. And please don't determine to set morning devotions as a religious activity to give you what... It's not about that. We are living in the last days. I hear almost more than anything else people asking for wisdom and discernment in how to live today. How do I, I don't know what to do with this situation or that situation. How often do we go to one another for aid or help or, or some kind of idea and we haven't even started with the Father? We haven't heard the Father's heart. Amplification. We're not hearing Him because we haven't paused to listen to Him. We've got to hear Him. Jesus said in Mark 4.9, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus had just spoken the parable of the seeds and the sower. And the sower and his seed, and the seed is the Word, and how the Word works in a person's life. And he, he goes through this whole parable. We read it now. We have the explanation. We understand it. And say, yeah, that's good stuff. But when He spoke the parable, a lot of the people sitting around listening were like, the apostles didn't get it. They had to ask him after they got back to the house afterwards, hey, what was that seed thing about? Can you explain that to us? Jesus said after speaking that parable, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What Jesus was saying required more than just listening to sound. It required hearing the intentions of his heart. Hearing what he was trying to convey. What's the difference between listening and hearing? Gang, listening is auditory. Hearing is internal. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10.17. And Jesus would that you and that, that I would hear him. And not just listen. You see, you can come in here on a Sunday morning and listen to a sermon. We can listen to Christian music throughout the week. We can listen to tapes and, and CDs of, of teachings. We can do all kinds of listening, but are we hearing the Father's heart? You know, there's a, there's a filmy haze that comes over my kids' eyes when, as a dad, I stray into lecture mode. I can see it. I mean, almost, I've, I've learned to see it. I used to miss it. And it would take Cheryl saying, do you see how he's looking at you right now? And I'd look and he'd be like, <laughs> he's not hearing me at all. He's listening to the words as long as he has to, then he can go do whatever else he or she wants to do. That vague expression, and it, it tells me, he may be listening to my words, but he is not hearing my heart. And I wonder how often God looks at us and says, I know you're listening to my words, but you're not hearing my heart. Because you're too busy. You're already into the day. Now some say, I do my quiet times, my devotion at night. Well, that's great. Then you get wisdom for sleep. <laughs> now think about that. Now, you should end the day with Jesus. I'm not saying don't do that. But the wisdom that we seek for that hour, for that moment, for that day... Why would we not start with that? 
How do we get from listening to hearing? Keep your finger there. Go over to John chapter 14. John 14. You want to amplify the voice of the Father in your heart to hear His heart and not just words. Listen to this. Jesus speaking to the apostles on the night of His betrayal, there after having the Last Supper together. He says in verse 19, After a little while the world will no longer see Me, but you will see Me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in My Father, and you in Me, and I in you. I don't know how much more intimate you can get than that. Verse 21, He who has My commandments and keeps them is the one who loves Me. And he who loves Me will be loved by My Father. And I will love him and will, listen, and will, listen, and will disclose Myself to him. I don't even need to say anything about that. Jesus said it all. Verse 22, Judas, this is probably Thaddeus here, Judas not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Now listen to the response. Jesus said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. This is absolutely key to amplifying the Father's voice in your heart, to hearing His heart. I believe it begins in the morning. But I also believe it begins by going to His Word. Keep His Word. Do what He commands and you will amplify the Father's heart in your own. I'm going to talk about this more, I believe, next Sunday. But we talk a lot about doing the commands of God and yet we don't do the commands of God. Is your marriage in trouble? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. That is an imperative command. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. That is an imperative command. If husbands and wives just did that... In Christianity, marital trouble would go way down. Why is there so much marital problem in Christianity? Because we're not obeying the Lord. We're just not doing what He commands. And husbands, don't tell your wife to submit to you as unto the Lord. And wives, don't tell your husbands, love me as Christ loved the church. You do your part. You obey. And in obeying, we hear the Lord. More on that next week. You know, it may seem rudimentary, but if we say we listen to Him, but we don't do what He says, we gut the word of its power. And we are not hearing the Lord. Amplification. Number two, organization. Organization. Jesus not only heard the Father's heart, He learned the Father's agenda. Again, first thing in the morning. This is how the day started. Verse 36. Simon and his companions searched for Him. They found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And implicit in the Greek there is a sense of urgency. Almost a sense of, uh, of getting on to Jesus. What are you doing out here? There's so much work to be done. And I, I can imagine Peter probably was pretty stressed out. 
Because it was his house in Capernaum. And people were all over the place walking on his gazalias, you know, and he's just like, Where is Jesus? And so they go get him. Everyone's looking for you, he cries out. And where was Jesus? When the world's trying to set his agenda, he was allowing the Father to set his agenda. Even his apostles, good guys, love Jesus. They come rushing up to set the agenda for the day. Here's what's got to get done. Oh yeah, okay, well we'll take care of that. Make sure we get the day timer out, get the iPhone out. Let's make sure we're following the schedule and doing what everybody tells us to do. And Paul says, am I seeking to please man or am I seeking to please God? If I were seeking to please man, Galatians 1.10, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is out with the Father, right where He should be. Jesus said in John 5.19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. You know what that means? Listen to this. That means back in Capernaum, all those who were still sick, who still needed healing, who still needed relief from demons, were not the Father's business for that day. Now, I would have thought they were. I would have seen that as prime territory, masses of people, that's what I need to be about today. Of course. The task dictates the need. But I would be wrong. The Father's business for the day and Jesus understood this, was to go elsewhere. Jesus said in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. How do you judge rightly on a day-to-day basis? If you want your judgment to be right on target, then you do the will of the Father. And you listen to Him. From a human perspective, there were needs to be met, people to be cared for, things to be done. Everyone is looking for you. Do you ever feel that way, moms? I just listen to all the times through the day that the word mom is shouted in our house. And I thank God that He did not make me a mother. It would drive me nuts. There are times I hear, Mom, and I just close my office door because, you know. It's okay. God made Cheryl strong enough to deal with that. Not me. Not me. People are always looking for you. Hey, people were always looking for Jesus. Always looking for Him. His parents were, and He was only 12 years old. Remember that? Where is He? And they find Him in the temple. And I love what He says. Luke 2.49 Even at the age of 12, He knew where He needed to be. He says, Why is it that you were looking for Me? Did you not know that I had to be in My Father's house? Well, that wasn't His parents' agenda. No, but it was the Lord's. Where else do you think I should be? Jesus says. His amazing time management skills, even as a preteen. He had the Father's agenda. At the very beginning of His ministry, there in Cana, in Galilee, and His mother comes up to Him. She knows there's something special about Jesus. The wine ran out at the wedding. And we're told in John 2, verse 3, the mother of Jesus said to Him, they have no wine. (laughs) Son, do something. 
You need to do something. And I love Jesus' response. Woman, (laughs) what does that have to do with us? And he says this, my hour has not yet come. And I'm sure Mary's treasuring this in her heart. His hour, what's he talking about? Jesus always knew the time. He always knew exactly what needed to be done when it needed to be done. So, when the sisters sent word to him in John chapter 11 that one of his closest friends, Lazarus, was dying, Jesus, because he always knew the Father's agenda, did not rush to see Lazarus and hopefully to rescue him from his death. In fact, we're told in John 11.3, when Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Rick, Cam, had her baby. Jake and Cam were wondering if you could come over and, and we could do a little prayer tonight. I'll see you in a week. <laughs> what does that say about, about loving someone, about really caring? And Jesus cared enough for Mary and Martha and Lazarus not to go. He, look at it this way. He cared enough about them, loved them so much, He let Lazarus die and allowed them to go through the horror of that. The sorrow. The anguish that those sisters would have felt as they saw their brother wrapped and put into the tomb, still wondering, where's Jesus? Where is He? And sometimes I wonder, where's Jesus? In the midst of my sorrow, where is Jesus? Doesn't He care? thing is, He cares so much, He's going to do things on the Father's time, not on mine. And not on yours. Can you imagine the joy in the eyes of Mary and Martha when Lazarus walked out? A greater joy they probably had never felt before. And Jesus knew that was for them. And He knew through this the glory would be straight to the Lord. And it was. People glorified God because of this. On the night of the Last Supper, the very night of His betrayal prior to the crucifixion, John chapter 13, verse 1 says, Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, and that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He now loved them to the end. He knew the time. How did Jesus always know, day by day by day, what the time was? Now you can say, because He was God in the flesh, and I understand that, but He was also one who emptied Himself, who relied upon the Spirit of God, the Spirit who came on Jesus in His baptism, so that we would see how a human being can interact with God. And this human Jesus, the Son of Man, knew the Father's agenda because every single day started with the Father's agenda. He began by getting away with the Lord. Organization. Amplification. He heard the Father's heart. Organization. He learned the Father's agenda. What does God have for me today? Perfect composure. Such perfect composure in Jesus that later that same night, that Thursday night, He said in John 16.32, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. Each to his own home and to leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus knew He was about to enter into the loneliness, loneliest place in His entire life. But He knew He wasn't alone. Because I submit to you that that morning, 
He had already had conversation with the Father. He already knew what was coming. He was prepared for the day. His entire life, his entire ministry was organized around the Father's agenda. And that, that is why Jesus had so much peace. That's why He was composed. That's why nothing ever shocked Him. Why He was never caught off His guard. And and listen, in this organization with Jesus, nothing was left undone. You gentlemen who have your honeydew list at home and you're like, I'll never get to it. You know what, yesterday, can can I just say this? Yesterday... It's remarkable to me. I spent like two hours moving one piece of furniture. (laughs) One dresser. Two hours. Because when the dresser got moved, well, I got a vacuum there. Look at the vacuum. And oh, but now the cords are all hanging out, so I got to fix that. Oh, but now the hole in the wall needs patching. Oh, but now the picture that was up needs to be moved. And it was just, ah! And after like two hours, I walked out of our bedroom and I said, Cheryl, no more to-dos. Don't give me anything else to do because I've spent from one thing on the list. Check. <laughs> I've still got all these things, you know. And in ministry, I've got all these emails to respond to and calls to respond to. And I hate the telephone. I love you guys. Don't get me wrong. But all the to-dos that sit there and Jesus never left anything undone. He completed the task. There were no sticky notes on the cross. Well, wish I had gotten to that. Guess that's just going to have to not get done. His iPhone wasn't beeping missed alerts after the resurrection and the ascension. I don't know, Jesus' phone is just going off. Look at all this stuff. Man, He accomplished everything. How do you know that? Because He said so. John 17.4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. You want to lower your stress level? There's something you can do right now to lower your stress. Let the Father's agenda dictate and accomplish what He has put you on this earth to do. Not all that other stuff. Now there's stuff that's got to get done. The furniture needs to get moved. I love my wife as Christ loved the church, so I was willing to sacrifice the two hours yesterday for that. (laughs) And you might say, hey, you know what? It's fine for Jesus to accomplish what the Father sent Him to do. After all, He came to save the world and that was His deal. But I'm just trying to get through the work week. Listen. A couple of things. Number one, you were not sent to get through the work week. God did not give you life so that you could fill up a daytimer. You were sent to save the world just like Jesus. You were saved to save the world. You were saved to bring the Gospel. You now live here on this... I've said this so many times. The reason why we're not raptured the second that we give our lives to Jesus is because then we have a job to do. Then we have an agenda to live by, and it is not getting all the stuff done that we think is so important. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And specifically the agenda of God, which by the way, if you start with God in the morning, and then you continue throughout the day, that agenda, however insignificant it may seem, may very well be the Lord's. You know, Dave, cutting down the tree may be God's agenda for the day, but but let Him tell you. Not me. I called him about a tree that needs to go down. (laughs) But here's the other thing. If we live by lists, we will never get done. And you know that. 
We'll just never finish because there's always something new on the list. That's why I always go back to this verse in my own mind, but often right here, Matthew 6.33, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Seek the kingdom. Seek the Father's agenda. Amplification, Jesus heard the Lord. Organization, Jesus learned the Father's agenda. And number three and finally, simplification. Simplification. Jesus stayed on message. And nothing that happened could get him off message. He just stayed on point. Verse 38 says, He said to them, Let's go somewhere else. Remember, Peter had just frantically come up. Everyone's looking for you. And Jesus says, Okay, let's go somewhere else. (laughs) Which is often my response. (laughs) You know, for a totally different reason. Cheryl says, The kids are looking for you. Come on, let's hide. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that's why, that's what I came for. And he went out into their synagogues throughout all of Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. So there were demons in other places that needed dealing with. And there were other hearts that needed to hear the Word of God. And the Lord told Jesus, who knew that's exactly what he needed to do, and when it was time to go. Jesus was ready to go. Now I shared a week ago Wednesday that this has always impressed me about Jesus. Where was the excitement and the response and the buzz of His ministry in that moment? Back in Capernaum. That's where it was happening. That's where things were clicking. That's where the crowds were humming. Back in Capernaum. And in my flesh, that's exactly where I would go. In fact, I would not have left for prayer in the morning because there wouldn't have been time. There's too much ministry that has to take place right now, right here. Well, that's the flesh talking. Jesus gets away with the Lord. And He stays on message. He says, that's what I came for. To preach the Gospel, note this, I really like this, to the little guy. I came to preach the Gospel to the little guy. I'm not just going to the big city centers. Now, He would go to Jerusalem ultimately, eventually. It's not where He started His ministry. He didn't go to downtown Seattle and plant a big mega church. You know? He went to the equivalent of North Whidbey Island. He went to podunk places. That's what the word means. You Bible students know this. Comopolis. Let's go to the towns, he says. The towns nearby. Little towns in the Galilee. Comopolis. Unwalled villages. Let's go out to the hamlets. Let's go out to the little uh, podunk places, the settlements that, that don't have protection and don't have you know resource like everyone. Let's go there. That's where I am supposed to go. Now put this in context for Jesus. For Jesus to say, let's go to a podunk town. Jesus was born and raised in Nazareth. You know what the population of Nazareth was in His day? They believe now about 150 people. Anacortes, Oak Harbor, these are not small towns compared to where Jesus grew up. Jesus was a small town boy. 150 people in His town where everybody knew everything that was going on always. And Jesus says, let's go to the little towns. Littler than Nazareth, probably. Let's go to the places where people would not be able to hear. People who can barely get down to Jerusalem the three times a year that's required. You know, Let's go there. He has a heart for the little guy. 
And by the way, let me just say this. Regardless of what we think is our government's responsibility to the poor, we know our responsibility to the poor. As a matter of fact, politically speaking, I am opposed to government entitlement programs primarily because I believe it's the responsibility of the church. And I would appreciate it if the government would get out of the way and let us do what we were called to do. So that instead of people going to the government for aid, they would go to the church for aid and there meet Jesus. You see how insidious even entitlements are? How Satan has used this to try and meet people's needs and yet the needs that are being met are are enslaving people rather than coming to the church and finding freedom in Jesus Christ. And that is our responsibility, gang. We need to be careful. A lot of conservative Christians start to become hard-hearted against the poor because, well, I'm anti-entitlement, so I'm not going to give them anything. No, you should be giving them things. You should be caring. You should be out there meeting the needs. That's our calling. So for Jesus, it wasn't the size of the crowds that mattered most. It was the message of the Gospel. And it didn't matter if he was going to meet up with two people or 2,000 people. It didn't matter. It was the message of the gospel that needed to get out to all people. He had a heart for the little guy and he stayed on message. Note this in verse 14 of chapter 1. Go back and look. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Verse 21 in chapter 1. They went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Verse 2 of chapter 2. Many were gathered together so there was no longer any room even near the door and He was speaking the Word to them. Verse 13 of chapter 2. He went out again by the seashore and all the people were coming to Him and He was teaching them. You see it over and over throughout Mark. The Gospel, the message, that was His calling, that was His purpose and He stayed on message. Simple. Simplification. We have one message as followers of Jesus Christ. The message of the Gospel. Nothing else. We don't have the message of marriage seminars. They're fine. I, I get that. you know. But our message is Jesus. We don't have the message of getting your financial house in order. I get that there are good seminars you can go to and learn that. But our message is Jesus and the Gospel. Keep it simple. Simplification. Jesus used every opportunity, whether He was by the seashore or at the synagogue, every opportunity to teach the Word of God, to proclaim the Gospel. Well, great. How does that help me in my stress-filled life? You've just given me one more thing I've got to do. (laughs) We get stressed and we get tense, listen, when we get off message. When we forget why we're here. That's when life gets stressful. But when we are back on message, when we realize that the reason why God gave us that job is so we could go into that workplace and tell those people about Jesus, then the day takes on a totally different approach, doesn't it? When I realize that I am in this class not to pour more knowledge into my head, but to impact the other students and perhaps even the professor up front, well, that changes things for me. 
When college students realize they go to college for Jesus. When high school students go to high school for Jesus. When elementary kids go to elementary school for Jesus. When we go to the workplace for Jesus. When we go to our homes to talk about Jesus. Changes everything. And again, the stress comes down as the purpose becomes clear. Simplification. Stay on message. How do I do that? Here's the main thing. In verse 35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. And again, He started with the Father. For that day. Not for the next day, or the week after that, or the month after that. For that day, Jesus got up and started with the Father. Amplified, organized, simplified, and then He went on from there. But he always started with the Father. Spurgeon said, Look no man in the face till thou hast seen the face of God. Speak thou with none till thou hast heard or had speech with the Most High. It's a simple answer. Whether we respond to it or do it is another thing, but it is an absolutely simple answer to discernment in difficult days. How do we deal? I'm telling you how. I'm not telling you the words telling us. We see in Jesus exactly how to do it. In the midst of turmoil and the hubbub and the stress and the strain, Jesus got alone with God and that is absolutely absolutely the key. Please don't hear this as a burden of self-discipline. The disciplines of the church, you've heard about it. Foster's book years ago, The Celebration of Discipline. On the one hand, that sounds nice, but on the other hand, it sounds like a burden. I gotta do the. I gotta be disciplined to get up in the morning. Well, if you are burdened with self-discipline, you will find yourself under the weight of legalism, and that's not what we're talking about this morning. How do you deal with difficult days, the days that we're in? Gang, you get up and you spend time with the Lord. It's personal, it's peace, and in this you learn priorities for that day. When the apostles came looking for him. Jesus knew that his day was not in Capernaum, as we've talked about. It was in the little towns, right? Look at verse 38. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. You Bible students heard this a week ago Wednesday. Hear it again. and Maybe you haven't heard this yet. Jesus says, for that is what I came for. This does not mean that's why I came to the earth. This is not the same as when he was talking to Pilate. And Pilate said, are you a king? And Jesus said, it is for that reason I have come. That he was talking about. Come from heaven to the earth to proclaim that his kingdom was close at hand. But in this case, when he says, that is what I came for, he's not talking about coming from heaven. What's he talking about? He's talking about coming from his prayer with the Father. In other words, that's why you guys found me. That's why I came out from behind the tree where I was praying. I heard you guys freaking out. This is why I came. To do this. To go to the little towns and to preach the Gospel there. That's why I came out of my prayer time this morning. The word here in the Greek is exerkomai. And exerkomai means to come or just to go out. To come out. To go out. And where had Jesus been? With the Father. So where did he come from? He came from his time with the Father. It's very simple. G. Campbell Morgan said, Had he been in the place of communion, or he had been, 
He had been in the place of communion with God. His ear had been wakened by God to listen to the secrets which God had to speak to him as his self-emptied servant. And now he said, to this end I came forth. This is why I came. He's not talking theologically, he's talking immediately. He spent the early hours of the morning in prayer and in the presence of God, and after getting clear direction for the day, went on out and met Peter and the boys, and they headed to a different location than the other guys thought was on the agenda. This is Jesus' daily pattern. Every day of his ministry. How do you know that? Because his spirit told us so in Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Meeting with Jesus in the morning is the greatest source we have for peace, for power, and for purpose for that day. And I'm just saying... If you want discernment in difficult times, start the day with Jesus. Just as we have here. Aren't Sundays wonderful? I love getting up Sunday morning, gathering together and worshiping, starting the day in worship, and then getting into the Word, and being with the Father in prayer. I love Sundays. If you love Sundays, why do you wait an entire week to do it again? When we could do it every single morning, start the day exactly as we just have. We desperately, desperately need to adjust our schedules to begin with the Lord. Why is that, Rick? Because 2 Timothy 3.1 says, Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, and we're there. What's going on? I asked in my heart, and the Father says, Difficult times, Rick. I've been telling the church for 2,000 years this was coming. Difficult times. Well, my friends, we are there. But the Father knows what's going on. Father knows how to get me through the day to the next. And so my encouragement to you is meet Him in the morning. Meet Him in the morning. Parents, I know it's tough. I know you've just gotten the kids to bed. I know this. I'm speaking from immediate experience. You get the kids to bed and it's 8.30 or 9 o'clock. You maybe have an hour to sit and, and veg to read or watch TV or whatever you do. And then you crash, and it's all you can do when the alarm rings in the morning to get up and get the whole thing going again. I know that. How tired was Jesus when he went to bed the night before? If you go back and read what he was doing, the few verses before, in fact, just looking at verse 32, when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases, casting out demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak. So he didn't send them away. He spent his evening in tough ministry, caring for people, healing people, driving out demons, did that all evening long, and then goes to bed, and he had every right, if anyone had a right, to sleep in. But he got up early while it was still dark. Why? Because sleep was not the most important thing for Jesus to have power for the day. Prayer was. And he realized, I'd rather do with a little less sleep and have time with my father than sleep in and rush through the day with the same kind of stress that most of us live with every day. He awakens me morning by morning. I invite you to pause 
come before Jesus right now. Father, I pray for Your agenda for today, for each and every one of us, that we would hear Your voice. We would hear Your heart, Lord. We would see what You're calling us to do today. I pray we would be compelled by the love of Christ to wake tomorrow morning, perhaps a little earlier, to meet with You, and again, seek Your agenda for the day. I pray, Lord, for discernment in these difficult days. That You would show us how to live and what we are supposed to do. That we really would learn to hear You. And Father, that we would not just seek to hear You in the tumult, but in the quiet hours. When the phone's not ringing. When the kids are still sleeping. When when things are not bustling. Lead us to that quiet place that we, like Jesus, might know Your will for the day. Draw me, Lord, to follow after Your will. Amplify Your voice in my heart that I might hear You. Lord, organize my world and simplify my purpose with the Gospel of Your Son, Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen.